I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A few days before Christmas in 2012, Jim and Sandy Melgar were celebrating their 32nd wedding anniversary. However, by the end of the night, tragedy would strike, and the next day, family members would find Jim dead, brutally stabbed and beaten, while Sandy was found alive, locked in a closet, tied to a chair. Controversy would soon arise as investigators would question whether this tragedy was indeed a home invasion or if there was a more sinister plot behind these events. This is episode 44, The Sandy Melgar Story. Amy. How are you? I'm good. What's happening? Uh, You know, I've been waiting to cover this case, I think, since we started the podcast. I believe your excitement has been long term. It really has. You know, I have a big interest in cases of wrongful conviction, but I heard about this case at the Innocence Network conference a couple of years ago. Then I found Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, and he does a deep dive into this case. I've been wanting to cover this case for a while. I knew about the case, but I didn't know it very well. And then I heard Bob Ruff cover it on Truth and Justice. Right, right. I knew he did a deep dive on this one. Deep dive. I want to say 45 episode deep dive. Are you kidding? Nope. And I commute a lot. So I was able to listen to it all pretty quickly and I was hooked. 
Before we get started, I want to thank Beverly Mora Luna for her help with this week's episode. Thank you, Beverly. Thank you. So Megan, we often get emails and reviews that really mean so much to us, but this review really humbled me. And I know you felt the same, Megan. So I'd like to take a minute to read it. This listener writes, listening to this podcast as a female security guard has literally almost saved me. I was constantly getting harassed in the community I worked in by an older male who always gave me a weird gut feeling. Amy and Megan constantly say, listen to your gut and give care case after case of proof of how to take care of yourself. I was listening to an older podcast from last year where they mentioned that having a record of things is always great, and I decided to file complaints against this resident. After seven complaints after incidents, they finally ended up listening to me and decided to make a report with police, where they ended up arresting him because he was tied to several sexual assaults. Thank you for giving me the courage. Well, thank you for protecting your community. Oh my gosh, and thank you for letting us know. That means a lot. Yes, thank you so much. I really am humbled by that. Me too. And everyone else, thank you so much for your comments, questions, reviews. I love the emails too. Yep, we appreciate you. Megan, before we get to today's episode, we have a few supporters we'd like to thank. Okay, who do we have? Today, we'd like to thank Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much. And also Bola. Thank you so much for your support. We also have Tanya to thank. Tanya, thank you. And then we have someone with a really unique nickname. Who's that? Thank you so much to SARS. Thank you, SARS. SARS told me it was a nickname that her sister gave her and it stuck. How cute is that? That is cute. Thanks to all of you who support the show financially and otherwise. This show is a lot of work and your support really helps. The name reads are from our patrons who support us and in exchange, they also get other perks like ad-free shows, exclusive live Q&A sessions with us, t-shirts, stickers, and more. So if you're interested in getting more engaged, check out the patron link in our show notes. And if Patreon isn't your thing, we also have t-shirts and stickers up on our website, www.womenincrimepodcast.com. The website also has all kinds of other resources too, like reading lists and links for help or how to get more involved. Now let's get back to today's case. Megan, have you ever heard of this case? I've heard of it. I knew it was on Truth and Justice, but I don't know the details at all. So this is going to be like, you're going to be revealing this to me as we go. Let's do it. So we have Jaime Melgar, who often goes by Jim, and that's how we'll be referring to him in this episode. He was born in Guatemala and had immigrated to the U.S. when he was just three years old. And he lived in Houston, Texas with his parents and his two older brothers. By all accounts, Jim was very smart, well-liked by really everybody. He was described as having a great sense of humor and living a very healthy lifestyle. He was very active and very helpful to all those around him. And then we have Sandra, known as Sandy, which we'll refer to her. Sandy also lived in Houston, and that's where her and Jim met back in 1977 when they sat next to each other in a high school classroom. How cute is that? They're high school sweethearts? They are high school sweethearts. You want it? Very cute. He actually sat behind her in class, and apparently he was smitten with her, and he used to pull her hair. Oh, Yeah, isn't that cute? cute. So... A few years after high school, in 1980, the two got married and they started their life together. Jim started his career as an IT specialist and Sandy a nurse. Later, they would start a medical billing company together and they worked quite closely with each other. And they also managed a few rental homes. The couple had one daughter named Liz, who was born in 1985. Around the time that their daughter was born, the couple became involved with Jehovah Witnesses. That's why, um, sorry, that's why I also remember this case because she was, they were Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. The Melgars allegedly wanted to provide a strong religious upbringing for their daughter, and that's why they had sought out a religion at this time. The family was very close-knit, very happy. 
According to their daughter, there was never any yelling, never any disrespect. As she would say, they were an example of a perfect marriage. However, like all families, you know, they did have a few obstacles. It was really Sandy's health that was the problem. Sandy suffered from many medical ailments. She had lupus, epilepsy, hypothyroidism. She had double hip replacement. She had short-term memory loss. She had bouts of vertigo. She also suffered from multiple violent seizures in which she would experience retrograde amnesia afterwards. Are you kidding me? Yeah, she really had a lot of health issues. At one point, she even had to seek out a six-week treatment for epilepsy and lupus because she had gotten paralyzed on one side of her body. That sounds terrible. Yeah, and it even caused her to be in a wheelchair for a little time. Wow. But through this hardship, her husband Jim was very supportive. He had a very strong involvement in both researching her condition, investigating any cures, and really Sandy depended on him to go about her day-to-day activities. But many reported, actually, you never heard anyone not echo the sentiment that they actually grew closer through her health issues. And Jim loved being a caretaker and he really stepped up to the plate oh. and their marriage got stronger through it. Oh, I'd hope someone loves me that much. Right? Mm. I love you that much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> On December 22nd, 2012, Sandy and Jim were celebrating their 32nd wedding anniversary. Their actual anniversary was a bit earlier in the month. I believe it was on the 12th. But as I mentioned, Sandy had some health issues and she wasn't feeling very well at that time. So they postponed the celebration. She was feeling up to it at this on this night of the 22nd. And they went to their favorite Mexican restaurant for dinner. On their way back from the restaurant, they stopped at a local CVS to purchase some drink mixers. According to receipts, they got their check from dinner at about 9 p.m. According to, you know, CVS receipts and surveillance, they were at CVS at about 9.30 p.m. Jim goes in to get some Coke, some Sprite, and then they head home. I want to point out that really what we know about that night is all according to Sandy because nobody else can corroborate. Okay. Okay. Sandy says that between 10 p.m. and 11 p.m., they got home. Jim started to prepare the drinks and some snacks downstairs while Sandy filled up the jacuzzi. They had a nice big jacuzzi in their master bathroom. The two spent close to two hours in the jacuzzi together before the family dog started barking in the backyard, prompting Jim to leave the jacuzzi to try and see what was going on. They had four dogs. Oh, boy. Yeah, two of which were chihuahuas. You know how much I love chihuahuas. I know you do. According to Sandy, they were having a great time in the jacuzzi. It was very romantic. They were talking about their future. When you know Jim had gotten out to go see what was going on with the dogs, after a few minutes of him not returning, Sandy decided to get out of the tub and get dressed. I guess at that point, it's been two hours. It's time to get out anyway. She says she sat on the chair in her closet. She had a nice walk-in closet. She said she began applying lotion to her legs, and that's all she recalls. After that, Sandy's memory goes blank. According to Sandy, the next thing she remembers is waking up in excruciating pain. She was in the dark and her hands and her ankles were bound. What? She would slip in and out of sleep and or consciousness, really not having any concept of time until finally she hears someone downstairs and she cries out. What she didn't realize was that by now it was actually the next day and about 15 hours had gone by. Jim had planned a family get together, which was scheduled for the day after these events. So Jim's brother, Herman Melgar, had arrived with his family to Jim and Sandy's home around 4.30 p.m. Along with Herman was Herman's wife, their two daughters, daughters and one of their daughter's boyfriends. Herman had stated that he had been knocking on the front door, which was locked. The family had also called and texted Sandy and Jim, but no one was answering. Herman then checked the back door, but that was also locked. So he ended up going through an open garage door and entering the house. The door to get into the house from the garage was open, so he let himself in. At this point, he didn't see anyone, but he went to unlock the front door for the rest of his family. Okay. Upon entering the house, Herman's daughter said that things felt eerie to her automatically. Everything just stood still. It just seemed eerily quiet, and both of their cars were in the driveway. Well, one was in the garage, one was in the driveway. 
They start, you know, looking around, trying to figure out what's going on, and they hear mumbling coming from upstairs, and then they hear Sandy calling for help. They run upstairs to a closet that was located in the master bathroom. So just to set this up for you, they have a nice size master bathroom, and in the master bathroom, there's one walk-in closet, and then there's also a walk-in closet in the master bedroom. Sandy's closet was one, and Jim's closet was the other. Okay, got it. They run up to the closet in the master bathroom where her voice was coming from, and they saw a chair propped under the doorknob from the outside, as if someone had, you know, locked her in there. Okay. When they opened the door, they found Sandy. Her arms and legs were tied up with scarves. She was wearing a bathrobe, and her wrists were behind her back, and her ankles were bound. She was laying in her own feces and urine. Oh. Herman, of course, helped her up by, you know, immediately they're scrambling. Herman was not able to get the bindings off, so he found a scissor that was nearby to cut them off for her. Sandy was disoriented and confused and frantically asking for Jim. Oh, where's Jim? Yeah. Jim's feet were hanging out of a nearby closet. Remember, I mentioned there were two closets. So his closet was in the bedroom, and that's where Jim was found. He was clearly deceased, stabbed 31 times, and in addition, there were dozens of other cuts and abrasions. He was severely beaten. He was tied up. He had his legs tied with a telephone cord and a rope around his chest. He also had substantial cuts to his neck and torso. Whatever had occurred, Megan, it was clear that Jim had put up quite a fight. I was just going to say that. And I I don't know if you're going to get to it, but Mm -hmm. are there any signs of sexual assault on either of them? There's not. Okay. Nope. That's a good question, though. Jim had many defensive wounds. So, Megan, you and I know this, but just in case our listeners don't, defensive wounds are types of injuries that result from an attempt to defend oneself. Right. So if you're getting stabbed and you throw your hand up. Exactly. Um, so gonna... where are they usually seen? Where do we see defensive wounds? I mean, a lot of times on the hands. On the hands, on the forearms, because if somebody's going to strike you, natural reaction to cover Put your, your hand yep. and forearms up. Yep. And his hands and his forearms were... It was very clear that he put up quite the fight. By all accounts, Sandy was inconsolable and she could barely move. The police and the paramedics arrived around 4.45 p.m. So this is all happening very quickly. Remember, the family got there around 4.30. From the moment the police arrived, they were suspicious of Sandy. Why? Exactly. Why? Well, for one, there was no sign of forced entry and nothing seemed to be missing. Jewelry boxes had been searched through and wallets and purses had been found on the bed, kind of strewn all around. However, it didn't appear that much was taken, so the police automatically said, this looks staged. Upon searching the surrounding area, police found a woman's white blouse, a towel, and a kitchen knife floating in the jacuzzi. And this kitchen knife would end up being the murder weapon, and it did in fact come from their home. I'm sorry, where did they find it? In the jacuzzi. Okay. They also found a loaded gun in the the bedroom closet in a safe where Jim was found. So that's Jim's gun. Jim had a gun that was locked in a safe, and it was almost as if he was reaching for it when he was killed, because he was found right below it, and some reports say his arm was almost like reaching for it, and there was a blood smear on the safe. So it it seems like he was trying to get his weapon to defend himself. Well, he went downstairs, someone attacked him or he thought someone was going to attack him. Someone's chasing him and he goes for his gun. That makes perfect sense, but he doesn't get to it soon enough. Exactly. I'm sorry, Sandy, the one who is paralyzed and uh, has all other sorts of medical conditions is thought to have inflicted this kind of damage on him. Yep. Okay. We're going to explore that a lot more. Okay. This is one of those cases in which you can find 70 plus crime scene photos very easily and you can really get a feel for what this scene looked like. You could see what the, you know, what the chair looked like. I mean, everything you want to see. I'm just going to tell you, I'm looking them up right as soon as we're done. I need need to see them immediately. They're, They're really interesting. So again, the police are very quickly thinking something doesn't smell right here. 
Again, she was inconsolable when the police got there. The police say that, but they also say she had no blood on her. There's plenty of pictures you could see of her from that evening. In fact, there was no blood found anywhere else in the house. There was no blood on her, no blood in the sink, in the bathtub, nowhere. She had zero defensive wounds. Her hands were photographed very closely. Her nails were intact. She had no cuts. But remember, Jim clearly put up a fight as per his wounds. So automatically, there's, this story doesn't make sense. The police said at some points she cried. At other points, she seemed to be crying but shed no tears. You know how this goes, Megan. I don't even want to get into the affect because that's just not even a point to yep. consider when deciding someone's innocence or guilt. Yeah. So Sandy tells police she believes that she blacked out after being struck on the head and she thinks that she may have had another one of her seizures. Her head hurt and her she was in pain, both her legs and her wrists, and she has a certain feeling after a seizure and she said the way she felt was reminiscent of those feelings. Did they examine her for head trauma? They asked her if she wanted to go to the hospital and she declined. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think she probably regrets doing that, but we'll okay. unpack that a bit. Okay. She tells them when she woke up, she heard dog, her dogs crying. And then soon after, she heard her family's voices. And that's when she started yelling. Again, the police are really just, they think this is very strange. They bring her right in for questioning. The police can't just rely on a hunch, right? They, they think course. it's her, but they're, they think we need a motive. We're going to get a motive. And I think she went so far as to lay in her own urine and feces, oh, too. it's unbelievable what they okay. say she did. Okay. The police needed a motive. And if you watch the interrogation, that is exactly what they are searching for. Again, you can watch the whole thing online. During this police interview, the police are asking her, well, who could have done this? Sandy, of course, is dumbfounded. She does tell police that she remembers a car tailgating them after they left the CVS, but that the car took a different direction at some point. She also mentioned a disgruntled tenant from a rental property that they owned. But she says, I really don't think either of these people did it. She even says, I know how it looks, but remember, I was tied up too. She says she heard no commotion. She heard no yelling. She heard nothing. They keep asking her what happened. They're clearly not satisfied with her story. And the interview is hard to watch at times because she is distraught. She has no shoes on. She's slow to answer questions at times. She avoids eye contact, covers her, her face. They don't give her shoes or socks. She had socks on, but no, no shoes. shoes. Yep. Okay. She was very emotional at times. She was hysterical. But of course, this would all be scrutinized. But the poor woman was in shock. And they think that her not making eye contact, her getting hysterical, these are all signs of her guilt. Either way, we know you cannot judge people's affect to traumatic events. Regardless, authorities were skeptical of the whole situation and everything Sandy told them. They just could not wrap their heads around the fact that her husband was murdered in the next room and she had absolutely no idea what was going on. They say, you know, it's, oh, it just seems too convenient that Sandy would have a seizure at the exact moment her husband was being brutally murdered. Well, Megan, what do you think can trigger a seizure? Stress. Exactly. This makes sense because we know stress and alcohol, they were drinking, not very heavily, but Sandy did not drink often and she did have a couple of drinks. So between the stress and the alcohol, those are common factors that can trigger a seizure. And what about if she did get hit in the head? Exactly. Also a brain injury, right? I mean, this is... We know that a brain injury can interrupt the normal connections between nerve cells in the brain, which can lead to a seizure. So I think her story makes sense. I understand why they think it's a weird crime scene, and I would agree, but nothing you've said so far 
far would at all indicate to me that this woman killed her husband. Yeah, I agree with you, Megan, but we have a lot more to go here. So let's see if you change your mind. Okay. The police had asked her to take a polygraph, but she denied. I don't blame her, Megan. Do you? No, I polygraphs are so unreliable. And unfortunately, if you take one and you fail any question on them, That's it. They zero in on you. They're not even going to look anywhere else. You're right. If you fail, it looks bad and the police are going to use that as reason to investigate you further. But if you pass, like it doesn't matter. It's not admissible. It's not admissible. You could just argue that they'll move on from you and move to other people. But that doesn't always happen either. Like in this case, do you really think that they would have cared? No, no, they definitely wouldn't have. She says she was under too much stress, and I think she is very smart for denying this, but the police see this as an admission of guilt and just more reason to suspect her. Yep. Megan, do you know how often polygraphs are correct? Coin toss, 50-50. Okay, good. I would have guessed that too. I read that they're only correct 70% of the time. That's probably more than I thought because yeah. I thought it was a coin toss. Okay. And Megan, I don't know if our listeners know, but there's no empirical evidence that any pattern of physiological reaction is related to deception, right? We know honest people might be nervous, which could set it off. And we know that a dishonest person, especially a sociopath, can be calm. Yeah. I still don't like, even if the number's higher, that means 30% of the time. Uh, I don't want to be in that 30%. Nope. No, absolutely not. Yeah, I wouldn't take a poly. Nope, me neither. And no lawyer would ever advise their client to do so. I agree. The police end up letting her go the next day. It's now the 24th of December. And at this point, she doesn't think that she's even a suspect. Investigators are at a loss without many leads, but that's likely because they suspected Sandy all along and they didn't even consider other possibilities, right, Megan? Tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. So a year and a half goes by. Okay. Sandy moves in with her daughter's family. And then in the summer of 2014, Sandy was indicted for the murder of Jim. So she would, again, the theory is that she would kill her caretaker and now she has to move in with someone else. I really... I know. This is really a frustrating And her one. daughter lived in Europe at the time. So... So you're going to do this and make your daughter uproot her whole family. Like, none of it makes sense. But they didn't just indict her. Listen to how they found out. There was no warrant for her arrest or the typical knock on the door from the officers. They actually found out in a crazy way. Liz says she went to the mailbox one day and there were tons of letters from lawyers who wanted to represent Sandy. No way. And she's like, what the hell's going on? So she goes online and they went on the Harris County website and they found out that Sandy was in fact indicted for the murder. At that point, they contacted their lawyer and Sandy turned herself into the police. Luckily, she was released on bond and she was out for three years waiting for the trial to begin. This is unbelievable. Because not surprisingly, she would not take a plea. Oh, yeah. No. The case finally went to trial with proceedings beginning on August 7th, 2017. The prosecution's case was led by Colleen Barnett and hinged on the absence of evidence. They would argue that a possible motive for Sandy killing her husband was that she wanted a divorce. The happiness was all a facade. But she worried about being shamed by the Jehovah Witnesses, and she didn't want to be kicked out of the religion, so she needed to get rid of her husband. But they offered no proof to show that, I'm assuming. None. This is like speculation completely. It's it's unbelievable. Going along with how unbelievable it is, Barnett painted a picture to the jury that included Sandy tricking Jim into letting her tie him up as part of quote-unquote sex play. And then stabbed him to death. I had a feeling that's where you're going with this. First of all, if I'm going to engage in sex play, am I going to tie you up with a phone cord? No, that's very bizarre. <laughs> the only reason I thought that is because I realized how the tying up would play. And then I was thinking of the, remember the Sheila Davalu case? Yes, of course. I thought of that too. That's funny you say that. The other thing that makes no sense is he had defensive wounds. If he was tied up, yeah. Unless that doesn't, she just fit, didn't that do doesn't fit with the story. Unless she didn't do a very good job tying him up. Maybe, I guess. Barnett also proclaimed that the home invasion was staged by Sandy. There was no sign of forced entry. But remember, that garage door was open. Herman Melgar was able to get in. just going to say that. You have two open doors. All the windows were intact. Nothing had been stolen from the home, she claimed. 
She also claims that many valuables were left in plain sight, such as Sandy's many prescription meds, bikes, tools, TVs. Obviously, when we talk about the defense, I'm going to get to the flip side of all of this. Okay. Barnett also demonstrated to the jury how Sandra could have feasibly tied her own hands behind her own back and how she could have used a small rug or a pillow sham to slide the chair against the door to lock herself in the closet. They actually had detectives reenacting both of these. That seems just completely ludicrous. And again, please go online and look at these pictures. The reason they say this is because, remember, the closet was in the master bathroom, so there was tile floor. So they were saying if you put something under a chair, you could slide it on the tile, and that's how you could lock yourself in the door. This would take master planning. Oh, my God. And it would be really hard. It's not like just an easy slide. You also have to get it. You're saying that the top of the chair would have to hinge under the door. Yeah. Right, from someone who doesn't probably have a steady hand anyway. And tying yourself up when you have arthritis and all of these other issues, okay? Sandy's medical records became a big focal point because Sandy had not reported any seizures to her primary doctor for several years prior to her husband's death. So they entered many years of medical records into evidence from 2008, 9, 10, 12, 13. But of course, the most notable was in 2012, the year of the murder. And they have on record that there was a physician who stated that Sandy was stable in regard to her seizures and that she did not have any episodes lately. The purpose of this was, remember, Sandy speculated that she had a seizure during the home invasion and that's why she couldn't recall anything. And she had explained to the police that she had frequent seizures and her previous seizure was about a month ago from the time of the crime. And the prosecution saying, well, she's lying because these doctors, you right. know, they're, they're saying she's fine. She's, yeah. you know, this was in the past. She's stable now. Exactly. So they're saying she's a liar and this is all just part of her big plan. The prosecution also called the next-door neighbor to testify about the dogs barking on the night of the murder. The neighbor testified that she never heard dogs barking that night, and she would know if they were barking because she had been woken up on various occasions by the dogs. It's ridiculous. Going more along with these dogs, the prosecutor also pointed out that if Sandy did supposedly hear the barking dogs, then she should have also heard... Jim fighting for his life with a so-called home invader. So they're saying, okay, Sandy is admitting she heard dogs barking, Mm -hmm. but yet she's saying she didn't hear, you know, this violent struggle. But it doesn't matter because according to the timeline, it sounds like she was already passed out by the time that Jim was being attacked. And the description I heard, that, that would fit. Yep. The prosecution did admit that when Sandy was checked on by the paramedics at the scene, they found no injuries to her face, head, neck, or wrist. But Sandy later said she had a head injury. Sandy did, in fact, have bruises on her upper arms, which you can clearly see in the pictures of her from that evening. The issue lies in Sandy's explanations of how she got these bruises. First, Sandy mentioned that the bruising could have been a result of her chronic illness because she bruised easily. Mm -hmm. Then she mentioned she sometimes falls and bruises easily and she may have fell. Then she mentioned it could have been from Jim grabbing on her arm to prevent her from slipping in the jacuzzi. Bottom line, it seemed like Sandy just wasn't sure how she got bruises and her speculations were used against her. Megan, don't you get bruises sometimes? You have no idea where they come from. Do you know who's just going to say that? Literally every week, James is like, where'd that bruise come from? I'm like, I don't know. I'm clumsy. I bumped into the bed. I don't know. And you can see in the photos, they're not... It actually looks like someone either grabbed her arm, mm-hmm. but it doesn't look like violence. It looks mm-hmm. like, you know, she hit it or someone was helping her. If she's a fragile woman, it doesn't take a lot to I mean, bruise I'm still her. not hearing strong evidence here, and I know you're going to go on, but can I just ask, was there life insurance money here? There was life insurance money. There was about a half a million dollars on Jim. However, there the family was not in any financial trouble. Remember, they had these rental properties. They were living a very comfortable life. Also sounds like with her medical conditions and inability to probably work, and he was still earning money, yeah. That she would have needed him in terms of working and earning still going Absolutely. forward. And she might have gone through that 
money, you know, quickly. Not only that, he was her caretaker, as you mentioned before, and she loved him. You know, there's no reason to think otherwise. The prosecution was, you know, as they do a lot of times in these cases, you know, they're scrutinizing every little thing. They cited the fact that there was a dining room chair next to the bed and they claimed Sandy had brought the chair upstairs as part of her plan to, you know, tie him up and give him a massage, which doesn't make sense anyway. This didn't hold much weight. There were actually marks on the carpet that showed that the chair had been there long, like, you know, imprints. Yeah. And family and friends say it was there because it helped their dogs get on and off the bed. (laughs) In fact, there was dog hair all over it. You know, a lot of these things were, you know, they also said um, Sandy left the garage door open intentionally so that she could be found by family the next day. But that doesn't make sense anyway, because Sandy didn't even make those plans. Jim's the one who made the plans with his. But they could say she knew. Exactly. She knew about the plans. I still wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I'm still not. That doesn't strike me. None of this sounds like strong evidence to me yet. Well, in the end, the prosecution wasn't able to establish a solid motive. I mean, they were looking hard for an affair or someone who could say that the couple fought or they were unhappy or she was unstable. They couldn't find anything. So why would she want to kill him? Honestly, they were just going on the the religion theory, and that's all they had, and it was pure speculation. Now let's go on to the defense. Okay. Sandy Melgar's defense team was led by attorney George Max Seacrest. They, just like the prosecution, focused on the absence of evidence, but they painted a picture of a happily married couple. The defense argued that there were, in fact, a number of items missing from the house. Liz, the daughter, she found a bag in the garage. Like It was one of her old book bags in the garage of the home that had Sandy's jewelry and an Xbox in it. And she handed it over to the detectives and said, like, hey, because they never found it. She found it the next day. And she was like, hey, you might want to look at this. Detectives had also asked Liz to take a survey of what might be missing in the house. And she made a list of quite a few items that were missing. There was also an empty plug where a TV should have been. And you can even see this in the crime scene photos. The prosecution basically did not feel that there was proof that there was a lot missing because there were valuable items in sight. However, Liz says, yes, they did leave some valuables, but some were missing as well. Right. So I think the prosecution is assuming that if someone was going to ransack the house, they would take everything. It's also a botched job, though, because they got interfered with, you know what I mean? So They didn't have time to finish everything, right? Another major point for the defense was that Sandy's nails were clean. No injuries, no damaged nails, and actually none of her DNA was even found on Jim at all, which some say was a little strange since they were together all night, and she does say that they had sex that night, but... Really, it's a non-issue. The point is that there's no DNA under fingernails. There's no defensive wounds. There's also absolutely no sign that someone cleaned up the house to hide any evidence. The prosecution made a big deal that there was a mop and a bucket in the dining room. No blood. And the reason why there was a mop and a bucket in the dining room, according to Sandy, is because she had four dogs and they were always having accidents, two of which were puppies. Or because she cleans her house. Right. And so they were really, you know, so and there was no blood trail throughout the house. There was blood nowhere except, you know, in the bedroom and in that one closet. So I'm assuming here the defense's defense is that there's no evidence. Yeah. And I think one of their strongest points is how frail Sandy was and how it would have been physically impossible for her to overpower Jim. I agree. Jim was only 125 pounds. He was a small man, but he was strong. He was one of those, you know, small but powerful men. He was very into fitness, very into working out. And regardless of how strong he was or not, she was, by all accounts, not strong at all. Right. Right. Something super interesting and very relevant to the appeals process is there are two unknown DNA profiles found, one male and one female. Where? Several different places in on handles, um, 
you know, in the bathroom, in the bedroom. I don't know if it wasn't of evidentiary value. That's why they didn't test it. I don't know. They probably are. But they probably would say if there's unknown DNA throughout the house, it could be a mailman. It could be. I think that's probably, you're probably right. We'd have to test all the DNA in the world. A neighbor could have come in. You know what I mean? So that's the argument I've heard a lot. A lot of the cases where people go, there's a hair. Yeah, but that could, that hair could have come from. Speaking of, there was a random hair, a random long black hair found right above Jim's body also. Oh my gosh. And I don't believe they ever did anything with that hair either. A few smaller points brought up by the defense included the fact that there was no motive at all, no search history that seemed incriminating. You know, again, they looked high and low. Many testified to her memory loss and testified to the fact that she was ill. She did have memory loss. She did have seizures. The, I think the main strategy was trying to discredit the investigation by pointing out shoddy detective work mm-hmm. and reiterating the fact that there's absolutely no physical evidence tying her to the crime. And let me point out, too, that it would be uncharacteristic of a woman to kill her spouse in this way. Women don't usually, you know, there was the Sheila Davalu, but she was mm-hmm. young and fit. But women don't usually murder their spouses in this fashion at yep. all. Yep. They usually pick methods that are, you know, easier to manage physically. Probably especially if they're frail physically, right? Exactly. <laughs> Like they were drinking, uh, slip a pill and you, you know what I mean? Like there's so many other so ways. many easier methods. Not surprisingly, Sandy does not end up taking the stand. So it is very important. Go back and look at those interrogation videos because those are relied on heavily since she did not take the stand. That's her voice. The trial lasted 11 days and most people really thought the prosecution failed to meet the burden of proof was they relied solely on circumstantial evidence and they didn't really put on a good, they didn't, they didn't really make a strong case, I don't think. Ultimately, the jury deliberated for about eight hours over two days. At first, the jury was indecisive and split right down the middle after day one. That's shocking. Yep, but eventually they found Sandy guilty of murder, and she was sentenced to 27 years in state prison. You're kidding me. No, you want to be more shocked? And again, go online, look at this. The jury foreman in the case did an interview. I don't recall if it was for KHOU or Dateline. But they were asking him about the case, and he said, you know, we could have given her up to 99 years, but we wanted to make sure that she would be young enough when she got out to still see her grandkids. So she would only be in her early 70s when she's released. So we said, you know, we thought it was humane. She'll be young enough to still see her grandkids. And he admits they did not see her as a threat to society. And ready for this one? What? He said, was this case provable? No, but it's the only thing that made sense. Oh, my God. So come on. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. He is admitting that like... There was reasonable doubt. Yes. I could not believe that I saw that. And I was like, wait, what? You know what? That's that's one of the problems that we talk about. People like need an explanation. Like they're like, well, if if there's no other explanation, then this has to be it. But this case sounds like it's riddled with doubt. I mean... Yeah. So she was convicted and sentenced to 27 years in state prison. And that's where she is right now. She has maintained her innocence from the beginning of the case up until now. And all family and friends support her. Sandy's appeals rest on two main issues. The first issue, which is very broad, proclaims that she is entitled to an acquittal because the evidence is legally insufficient to support the conviction. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's almost always, right, on appeal? A lot. (laughs) The second issue is a little more specific. It proclaims that even if the evidence is sufficient to convict her, she should be entitled to a new trial because the jury engaged in misconduct. How, you ask? Do they try to lock themselves in the closet? No, no, you would think that. But they did try to tie themselves up to see if they'd be able to get out of those bindings. We see this a lot. Yeah, we've seen this in a couple times and they're not allowed to do that. So the defense argued, of course, that this was improper because the defense was unable to see if the jury used bindings that were similar to the bindings that were described by Sandy. 
Sandy's appeal was denied by the 14th Court of Appeals, but a few good things have been happening in her case. For one, Megan, December 2018, guess who her new attorney is? Kathleen Zellner. Kathleen Zellner took the case. Oh, that's it. I have have high hopes now. I do too. Listen to episode 21 if you haven't, when we talk about the rock star that Kathleen Zellner is. Oh, that's great. So Kathleen Zellner is currently reevaluating the case and doing more DNA testing. As I mentioned, there is a lot of unknown DNA and some items that were never tested at all. Wow. And just recently, in August 2020, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, which is the highest court with criminal jurisdiction in the state of Texas, they agreed to take a look at the case. The petition for discretionary review was approved, and this is really promising because statistically, in well over 90% of cases, the Court of Criminal Appeals refuses this petition for discretionary review. Oh, wow. Okay. So things are looking good for her. That's positive. Currently, that's where that's where we are. The Texas Court of Appeals reviewing decisions of the lower court to see if the case can be affirmed or reversed. I truly believe this is a case of wrongful conviction. The bottom line is that the detectives ignored any evidence that pointed away from Sandy, what we know as confirmation bias. I wonder how experienced they were, too. You know, I wonder if this was a jurisdiction where they didn't handle a lot of these cases funny you bring that up. The lead detective was forced to resign two years after the crime because he forged search warrants in another murder investigation. And when his office was cleared out, evidence from the Melgar case was found untested and incorrectly stored. You're kidding me. No, I am not kidding you. Wow. Yeah. That's shocking. But again, all that new evidence found, you know, it's in good so hands now. I was going to say that, yeah, at least they're going to get that tested yeah. now. But this poor woman, I, I mean, I, this sounds like a wrongful conviction yeah. of epic proportions. I'm so disturbed when I hear that the reasonable doubt standard is just not being mm-hmm. employed properly in yep. some of th- these cases. Yeah, I totally agree. And detectives have done nothing but created a difficult path for her to try to prove her innocence. The evidence that could and I believe would have implicated someone else either was not collected Mm -hmm. or it was incorrectly cataloged and handled or not even submitted for testing. Mm, Okay. So, Megan, if not Sandine, then who? Right. Do you have any theories on what else could have happened here? I mean, it does sound to me probably like a home invasion gone wrong. Um, You know, if there was stuff missing and if they encountered him and he went for a gun. I'm going to, I would, I would probably go with that. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you, Megan. A few other pieces of information that I didn't bring up that support that. Again, we, they have the male and female DNA that was found in several key areas. Do you remember that shirt that was found in the tub? Yeah. That's a very interesting piece of evidence because it was not Sandy's shirt. I mean, okay. Sandy and, you know, other people vouch. It was not, it was a much larger size than Sandy normally wears. She swears up and down. She did not own that shirt. A strange female shirt in the top. And I it's mean. interesting. Bob Ruff did a lot of investigating around this shirt. And it's a shirt that can only be found at specific Costco stores. So it helps narrow things a bit that, you know, right. the perp either was a Costco member or someone gifted her the shirt. Who knows? But And this home invasion probably was, um, it sounds like it could have been a couple. A male and female couple. Well, you know who FBI profiler Jim Clemente is, right? Of course. So he was on Bob Ruff's show, and he theorized that this was a home invasion gone wrong, just like you, Megan, very Mm -hmm. smart, and that Jim probably fought back against the invaders and was murdered, and he believes it could be up to five assailants. Yeah. What do you think about that, though? Because we... I don't know if there were five assailants, but I'm getting the strong feeling that we've got two assailants. Why do you think there was probably not five? I don't... I mean, I don't think they really showed that there was mm-hmm. enough. Yeah. Five is a lot, too, to be in a home invaders, five people. I also think, wouldn't one crack and come forward? If there's... That's a lot of people to keep their mouth shut. Sorry, that's even more obvious. Five people You're the one who it. always reminds yeah. me of that. That's why I kept asking. I'm like, no, no, you know this one. <laughs> five people... Yeah, five people can't keep a secret. No way. There were a few other things interesting. There was a similar home invasion that was 
carried out in a surrounding area with a nearly identical MO, and it was never investigated for a possible connection. Just nine months prior. You're kidding. No. I mean, come on here. There was a suspect with a history of violence, drug charges, and robbery who was reported behaving strangely at the scene of the crime that evening. Police say they investigated this suspect, but you know what they did? They left a business card at his door after two failed attempts to reach him, and they waited for them to call him. Guess what? He never called them. Oh, I'm so shocked. Yeah, so that's really where the investigation into that suspect ended. I'm not saying this man did it, but he was released from jail two days before. Wow. Again, this means nothing, but this just shows you know, they didn't look at this neighbor who had just been released from jail with a history of violent crime. They didn't look at a case that had similar MO in the area. This just shows you that the moment they set their sights on Sandy Melgar, there was no one else. This is the classic tunnel vision case. So I want to close out here by telling people how they could take action because we need to get this woman out of prison. I agree. I don't think we need to do it. I think Kathleen Zellner is probably well on her way to doing it, but go to freesandymelgar.com. Okay, you can support the investigation by donating to the Jim Melgar Reward Fund. We've talked about Bob Ruff a few times. He's a Michigan podcaster who does truth and justice, and he has played a huge role in educating the public about this case and fighting for justice alongside the Melgar family. So him, along with the family, have have offered a $20,000 reward for a credible tip that will lead to an arrest in the murder of Jim Melgar. So anyone with any knowledge can email tjtipline at gmail.com. There's a tip line number 269-224-2833. Again, just go to freesandymelgar.com and help any way you can. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Amy. I certainly will be looking to support her as well. And thank you for bringing us this episode. Uh, hopefully we'll see some justice for this woman. I cannot wait to do our update on her case when she gets exonerated. Me too. Thank you so much, Amy. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's show include Dateline, ABC News, KHOU 11, Truth and Justice, and Justia. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.